Good morning, or good afternoon, wherever you are. Uh, this is Matt Wheatley. I'm here with Dr. Anwar Osborne, and this is a PobsCast podcast, uh, Observation Medicine podcast. We've been uh, missing in action for a little bit, but we are here in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada at ASEP 2016. Uh, we felt it was a good occasion to come back with a, another informative Observation Medicine podcast. Uh, so we've got a couple things to discuss. We had a ASAP Observation Medicine section meeting yesterday and uh, kind of wanted to give an update as to what we talked about. And then we got a couple other things to, uh, to discuss. So uh, Dr. Osborne uh, celebrated his ascendancy to the throne of, uh, of the observation section as the chair for the next two years. So uh, we, had a, we had a very good meeting. We had a number of guests come in and talk to us about things that are uh, germane to OBS medicine, and I think it was well attended. We had a number of great comments. Uh, the first guest was actually the president-elect of ASAP, Paul Cavella, who said he was a member of the OBS section and uh, a fan of observation medicine, and it sounds like he's going to have some heavy lifting for the section in the, in the months and years to come. I don't know. You want to Yeah, I'm excited about his level of uh, buy-in for observation medicine when uh, we had a chance to talk just for a minute at the meeting he did mention that psych psychiatric emergency services are a big part of uh, what he thinks OBS can do in the future I think uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later and uh, yeah. but for certain he's very engaged and uh, wants to be involved in observation and actually stayed for a big part of the meeting and I'm sure many of you guys who are listening have been to ASEP. It's a pretty busy conference for somebody who's like him and have to spend 30 minutes listening to what we had to say. I think uh, spoke a lot. Yeah, definitely. I was I was pleasantly surprised and impressed that he was able to give so much time because usually after their their elections for the the board and everything, they they go on this whirlwind tour of stuff and have other things to do. So it just shows the importance of observation services and and, and observation policy that, that he's taking such an interest in it. Right. We uh, had him come, come and talk. I actually spent a few moments kind of outlining or just kind of mentioning the things that I thought were going to be important over the next couple of years. Uh, just after we presented uh, Dr. Chris Baugh with a certificate and appreciation for his previous service to the group. The three things that I kind of brought up, and it's really things that everybody who is involved at all in the ops community knows are important, uh, are number one, kind of ushering in this change with chest pain and chest pain observation. Now, it almost feels like we're beating a dead horse, or is it kicking a dead horse? I don't know. <laughs> Abusing a deceased animal. But I think uh, there's a lot of knowledge translation in the overuse of stress testing, and I think because OBS was one of those ways that, uh, I guess, facilitated people doing a lot of stress testing, I think we need to be part of the solution as uh, we try to get more responsible with the stress testing. There was a larger discussion uh, between or, uh, with Mike Ross and Arjun Venkatesh regarding 
some of ASEP's uh, policies and practices that they're using regarding meaningful use. Uh, and obviously we've seen stuff with uh, CTPE protocols and stuff like that. And I think uh, chest pain testing is, is going to be one of them where they're really going to try to not necessarily standardize practice, but I think come out with some more some stronger recommendations in terms of which patients need further workup uh, beyond the ED, which patients can be safely discharged. So yeah, we had a, you did lead a little bit of a discussion about the uh, EDACS score uh, and the heart score. Um, and it seemed like most people at least had some sort of scoring in place, um, but we felt that, yeah, like you said, there was some knowledge translation uh, issues in terms of just the workaday docs, um, being able to being able to apply those scores and feel good, specifically about sending patients home with no further testing. So, um, right the the other the other thing that I kind of mentioned was we need to kind of make sure that the observation section uh, stays vibrant with uh, kind of some new uh, voices. You know, a lot of the people that would be on the Mount Rushmore of observation uh, are coming to the, the tail end of their careers, and I don't mean that in a mean way, uh, but Dr. Bohan uh, is retiring uh, from uh, the Brigham, and uh, he's one of the godfathers in OBS. Uh, Dr. Graff is uh, nearing retirement, as well as uh, Dr. Ross. He'll tell you no because he's got kids in college, but, you know, you can't practice forever. <laughs> but, That's true. <laughs> but we, uh, we did some elections, and we have some people who really haven't served nationally uh, representing, which I think is great. Um, and the, uh, the final piece that I didn't talk that much about, but it was kind of like a subtext of uh, what we uh, discussed at the meeting, is that I would really like to keep the observation section very visible in uh, some of the more salient issues in uh, that one, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, is uh, about uh, psych services. When uh, ASAP comes up with a clinical policy about uh, things like TIA or chest pain, I don't know if ASAP's going to do any more chest pain cl clinical policy, but uh, I think the observation section should at least try to be part of that discussion. Uh, occasionally we have people on, on those... Uh, policy committees, but I, I would like to at least make sure that there's a mechanism to have our voice heard uh, in these sorts of situations. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's important, and I know we've talked at previous meetings about reaching out to other sections and uh, being involved with uh, other groups within ASEP that, that observation medicine involves. Um, one thing I thought that was really interesting yesterday was uh, you had uh, Joe Ibarra from the freestanding ED section come and uh, kind of give an address a little bit about what what their section does and and really it was a kind of a top-down uh, thing about freestanding EDs. Uh, one thing I didn't realize being uh, practicing in the state of Georgia which doesn't have freestanding EDs is it's really state dependent. It, uh, it, it really depends on the state laws that will allow these EDs to either exist or not. So um, it, it's one of these things that it's good to know about, and I think we've gotten a number of questions uh, at the MSAP OBS conference about uh, the existence of freestanding EDs and can you do observation in them. Um, so Dr. Ibarra's summary of that was, was really good. Um, he practices in the state of Texas, which I think is 
uh, most people would look at as the kind of national leader uh, for the development of these and and uh, he said I forget what his acronym was so you can have both hospital associated ones and then you can have completely independent uh, emergency departments and he says most of them will have uh, you know two or three observation beds and they will they will have low risk observation protocols that they're that they use there so uh, it was definitely a good connection to make for the observation section uh, and it's somebody that uh, both Dr. Ibarra and his group are, are folks that I think we uh, should have close contact with in the coming years as this as this uh, concept of freestanding emergency departments unfolds. I think uh, he was uh, very uh, very engaging as a, uh, a speaker and I think one of the more salient things that he did or, and or said was he kind of dispelled the myth of these freestanding ERs having patients who were kind of inappropriate for observation. I think if you were to just imagine or you weren't able to talk to somebody in his position, you might think that, well, you know, if they got to send the patient someplace else, they might be doing slow admissions uh, more frequently than, say, in a traditional observation unit. Uh, his experience actually speaks otherwise and says that he thinks uh, what happens in these freestanding ERs uh, in terms of observation is pretty consistent with uh, the data and what's appropriate. And that was actually pretty interesting for me to hear and uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, he was able to answer that uh, when asked as opposed to uh, 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 kind of skirting the issue. I also think that uh, he was very upfront with saying that you know a lot of these places are in more affluent areas. Also he joined the observation section yeah, which was uh, which was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely kudos to him for that. Yeah, I thought his point about the kind of the neighborhoods that the freestanding EDs tend to go to in terms of paying patients, private insurance, uh, was interesting because that's definitely been my perception. Uh, he says right now though, uh, CMS doesn't recognize freestanding EDs. Definitely not the uh, totally lone wolf, not hospital associated freestanding EDs, and so they actually have difficulty taking Medicare or Medicaid patients. Uh, you know, I guess it will remain to be seen if and when those barriers are lifted, if you start seeing freestanding EDs show up in more uh, economically depressed communities. I mean, that, that'll be, I guess, the true test of the model if, if, people, if people do that. But, um, it, you know, on another note, though, it, it would definitely be very interesting for folks, you know, if anybody listens to this who practices in a state or practices in an area uh, where there are freestanding EDs, you know, even just a, a survey of those EDs to produce, you know, how many OBS cases do they see in a month? I mean, that would be easily an abstract for SAEM. Um, so, you know, it's something I think through the ASAP OBS listserv, uh, you know, we can hit up that question in terms of a, a research paper because I, I think as with a lot of stuff in OBS, we don't truly know the numbers we're dealing with, but I think that would be definitely something that could be uh, publishable or at least an abstract uh, for that. But yeah, it was it was definitely I think one of the things I took out of the out of the meeting yesterday was was his talk, and I thought it was great. So um, we also had our our usual uh, policy update, um, kind of keeping everybody apprised of changes in CMS and OBS payment policy. Uh, you know, that's Dr. Ross's wheelhouse, so he's able to stand up and uh, give, give kind of the spiel on that. And I think 
most of the stuff I think in terms of the composite, composite APC uh, we dealt with on a previous podcast. Uh, I, I think the the biggest thing on most people's lists who are running OBS units is is the Moon Act. So, um, well, I mean, uh, summarize that for people who are <laughs> don't know what the moons are. Well, there's uh, the 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 overriding uh, thing I'd like to say is that we're going to put Mike's uh, five or six slides on the. Uh, ASAP ob section page and uh, make that available. That was like five people requested that all at the same time, and you know the short of it is is it's a not not a Medicare change per se. This is a uh, a law, right? So it's like a statutory change voted on by Congress, signed by the president, that kind of thing, where uh, hospitals are going to be required to let patients know. Uh, that they are in uh, observation, they're getting observation charges and billing uh, if they are in the uh, facility for 24 hours. And uh, they have some scripting that uh, is suggested, uh, but really this is, uh, this was started in, in hopes of better informing Medicare benef beneficiaries. Now, uh, there's been a fair number of uh, Setbacks isn't quite the, the right word, but uh, you know, challenges that have come up uh, in the implementation of this that have kind of pushed the uh, the full implementation of this probably to late this year, early 2017, uh, as far as uh, the enforcement of the, the Moon Act. Now, uh, what the observation section needs to uh, communicate is that, you know, the, these... Uh, these things are, are going to be a big issue for hospitals coming up in the uh, in the future. I think uh, one of the things that came up was uh, what if patients don't want to be in observation status? And uh, you know, Matt, how would how would you suggest that uh, that people uh, handle that issue? Honestly, that's a very very difficult thing because uh, I know I haven't had any personal experience with it in my own patients, but I've definitely heard of folks that I work with and folks at other hospitals in our in our group that have had that where they try to admit somebody for chest pain to this to the CDU uh, and the patient says, Oh, you know, I've heard about that. You know, that was on that was on the news. I don't want to go and, and so it it really like with anything else in medicine, it becomes a question of kind of informed consent and shared decision-making with the patient. Uh, I think the important thing to tell the patient and what has been shown in uh, health services literature is that what increases the cost for the patient is prolonged observation. And so really what you can, what you can tell the patient is that uh, as a result of your ED you know, the workup we've done in the emergency department, labs, x-rays, whatever, uh, you know, we're not sure if, we're not sure if your condition uh, is, is severe enough to need uh, to be admitted to the hospital fully and spend two, three, four days in the hospital. We need some more time to sort that out. Um, and then what you need to do then for the patient is make sure that you're managing them actively when they're in observation, and that if they cross that first midnight, then you can change them to inpatient services, uh, because the the amount that they're going to pay out of pocket is less if they're in observation for you know 24 hours. But once they start crossing that 
24 hour, 36, 48 hour, uh, that's when that's when they can see increased out-of-packet costs. So uh, I think it is reasonable to have the conversation with the patients because I think they obviously have heard stuff through lay press about observation services, um, but I think we can also do a lot to reassure them that this is appropriate for their case and and there shouldn't be any financial repercussions for them in that. Okay, so... Uh, that's definitely going to be a, a, a hot policy issue moving forward. Uh, so I think we wanted to wrap up the uh, podcast here, uh, talking a little bit about, uh, I don't know if it's because we're in Vegas, but uh, talking a little bit about intoxication <laughs> and uh, uh, strategies for uh, observing patients both with intoxication and or psychiatric issues. Uh, who present to the emergency department. Right. One of the uh, uh, big abstracts that was presented uh, here at ASAP was uh, a uh, study with the NAHAMSIS database, and it basically showed that ERs uh, are boarding a lot of psych patients and kind of uh, dovetailing with that. We board a lot of psych patients and intoxicated patients. Uh, this abstract talked about the uh, type of boarding that we do uh, particularly in the face of decreasing inpatient psych beds. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity, I guess, uh, that uh, is there for how to manage these patients. Now, uh, depending on how you frame it, you can frame this uh, uh, increase in boarding as uh, patients being, quote, dumped in the ER because of uh, system issues. And uh, I think that's definitely one way to look at it. I, I definitely think that's a huge part of the problem. And, but on the other side of that, you know, whenever the uh, health system is faced with some, some problem like this, you know, the ER and uh, to an extent uh, observation ends up having to, to step up and, and, and do something about this. And, uh, you know, these discussions, uh, like the one we're having now and the ones that are, like, not... not not always in the literature, but in clinical practice, kind of talk about psychiatric patients and intoxicated patients, uh, kind of one of the same, uh, and uh, mostly because there's a lot of overlap in uh, how you would care for some of these patients. So, uh, you know, there's no easy answer, but let me ask you this, Dr. Wheatley, what, what, what sort of things happen at uh, Grady, which is, you know, I, as many people would know, like a, a huge downtown uh, urban teaching center that has a lot of these patients in a city with uh, and state with a dearth of inpatient psych beds. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think you brought up a number of issues here, and I think m most folks have seen their number of inpatient psych beds decrease uh, pretty much in every state. I, I'm not aware of a state that's having an increase or is holding steady. I think most just due to budget cuts, they're having to cut these uh, inpatient psychiatric beds. So a lot of folks are finding their ways to the emergency departments uh, in some sort of crisis. Uh, the other thing you mentioned is uh, the overlap. And we see a lot of folks that have essentially substance-induced psychosis. And so they'll come in and look very uh, disorganized, uh, you know, but they're either on, uh, you know, methamphetamines or cocaine or some, some sort of combination uh, of the two or, or other substances and as they come down from that they normalize and are not necessarily deemed to need uh, psychiatric beds. Uh, one of the advantages we have at Grady 
uh, compared to a lot of our colleagues who practice uh, in, in smaller settings, is that we actually do have inpatient beds. I mean, so some of that means we see an increased amount of psychiatric patients, but we also have a psych ED that's run by psychiatrists. Um, so in terms of boarding patients for many, many hours waiting on psychiatric beds, we're not necessarily dealing with the same issue that some of our colleagues are. Emory University Hospital, on the other hand, uh, they will. it's not uncommon for them to keep patients 48, 72 hours waiting for a bed, and a lot of times their insurance status plays into that, how easy it is for them to get beds, um, so it can be very difficult. I think one of the questions that needs to be answered for sites that are looking at developing an observation protocol for these patients is the location of observation. Um, most EDOBS units have a restriction against uh, what we call patients at risk of self-harm. So whether that's the intoxicated combative patient who's maybe a fall risk or a risk of uh, getting into an altercation with the staff, somebody who needs to be sedated and needs to be monitored while they're sedated, uh, those folks typically don't go to the EDOBS unit. And the reason for that is mainly nursing, that the nursing ratios are not such that you need you can have a one-on-one -on -one patient with a sitter or somebody who's suicidal. Um, there are units, however, where those patients are accepted. And so that's, that's a question that needs to be answered more on a local and institutional level. What some places are doing is what's called OBS in place, where they will start an observation protocol but keep them in their bed in the ED, or they may have a couple beds set aside where those patients can go. And uh, for the intoxicated patients, you know, if they just need to sober up, um, get some fluids, that kind of thing, they can be watched safely. Um, for the psychiatric patient, you know, it's a way that they can get their workup done, get their evaluation by the uh, psychiatric services, uh, whoever that may be, if it's a mobile team of, of uh, you know, psychologists or social workers that assesses the patient, or whether it's, you know, truly a uh, consult service with physicians, uh, however that looks. Um, one thing we did talk about yesterday at the meeting uh, is it, it's kind of a delicate line to walk on some of these patients because uh, the to qualify for observation services in some of them, you know, they come in and you know they're either actively suicidal or they're they're psychotic. They have a well documented history of of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder with psychotic features and they come in and you know it's like a CHF patient you know if they come in in full exacerbation you know they're getting admitted either on BiPAP or they're on a nitro drip you know so messing around with OBS isn't necessarily something you need to do similarly with the with psychiatric disorders um, folks with mild exacerbation that maybe if they get medicated or maybe if they talk with somebody you can kind of talk them down from where they're at and, and they would be amenable to outpatient services. So that latter group is the one I think you're really trying to capture in something like this. So. And really trying to operationalize that, like the definition of those two groups I think is where the, the most difficult part is going to be. Yeah. Because uh, the, the root of all OBS is supposed to be you're doing stuff to determine inpatient admission. Right. Uh, if someone comes in and they slit both of their wrists, they trained and took a bunch of pills, uh, you know, the, does that sort of person, somebody who's going to turn around within one midnight uh, with uh, some medication? I would say probably not. 
Uh, however, it's very hard to uh, find a, a pathway that's been validated yeah. that uh, really covers the separation of that sort of person and the person who uh, maybe had a lot of alcohol or some uh, other substance and then really needs to uh, metabolize those substances and be reassessed. So, yeah. uh, you know, that that space right there, that cognitive question, I think, is what... Uh, the observation provider and the administrator is going to have to deal with uh, in the future, uh, in, in the near future, rather, uh, in terms of properly caring for these, uh, these psychiatric and intoxicated patients. Yeah, uh, and I think the advantages to it are streamlining the care of the patients in the ED, um, and it would be interesting, again, to see from a research perspective if, if, if that's true, if, you know, length of stay or or just their care is less discretionary you know you've already got whatever meds or whatever fluids and stuff like that written for and and I I don't think we're advocating this as a way to kind of game the system and you know make all of a sudden your ED length of stays better I mean that's a maybe a fringe benefit of this but I think one thing it does do uh, again is just standardizes the care for these patients and so it's less less reliant on the ED docs or APPs or nurses uh, kind of guessing and coming up with something for each patient, you know, much like chest pain, much like heart failure, cellulitis, uh, having a, a well-trodden pathway uh, for these folks uh, takes a lot of guesswork out of the clinical care, and hopefully you would see better patient outcomes from that. That's true. So we uh, that was a pretty long podcast, man. We got to do this more often. That's true. Uh, too much on our too much on our chest. Too much to talk about. Uh, Vegas is one of my favorite places that to have a conference, and uh, you know the hotels are cheap, uh, mostly because you spend a lot of money in the casino and just give it back to them. So yeah, they, they know they know where they're getting their money from. So, <laughs> so uh, but yeah, we had a great time in Vegas, uh, and uh, you know we have. Uh, uh, a lot of things to talk about. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about them. Uh, so if you're not a member of the ASAP Ops section, you should most certainly join. Uh, there's, uh, again, the ASAP Ops Toolkit, was, which is probably one of our bigger achievements over the past three or four years as a section. Uh, and when you join the Ops section and start using the listserv, that's, you kind of tap into this huge knowledge base of other people. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the future, I think we're going to do uh, a little bit more thought on how to communicate uh, or disseminate a lot of this knowledge out to the folks. So uh, with that, uh, I think we can, we can probably wrap this up. So like, uh, like every time, if you do not have OBS, uh, you have a problem. And thanks for listening.